It's the Rush Fancast. Jerry and Steve with you. Jerry, we've got a big challenge today. We do? We do. We have to finish signals in this episode. Oh, okay. We have to finish talking about signals in around an hour. You think we can do it? Yeah, I mean, if necessary, we can skip one song. No, no, we can't <laughs> skip a song. You can find us on Twitter at Rush Fancast. Instagram, we are the Rushcast. Email Jerry, the Rushcast at gmail.com. And as always, Jer, yes. the bass intro is done by our good pal Lex. We appreciate him doing that as always. We appreciate him. <laughs> that didn't sound very enthusiastic. No, I I know. I don't know what I, I'm 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 reading something off the in the corner of my eye and I'm like, yep, we appreciate him. So I've got a Twitter poll for you, Jer. Oh yeah, let's hear it. A few weeks ago we spoke with John Petuto the man behind the amazing website CygnusX1.net. I recall that. We talked about album-ending tracks. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. (laughs) I asked the Twitterverse what their favorite album-ending track was, and I gave them four choices out of 19 album-enders. I had to narrow it down. Okay. Here are the choices I gave. The Garden, Available Light, Natural Science, and La Villa Strangiato. Oh, man. Now, the reason I gave these choices is because those were in our top three choices. Right. Both me and John picked Available Light. You picked Natural Science. You and I both picked The Garden. And I threw La Villa Strangiato in there because I figured a lot of people would like that one. Huh. I don't know what to say about that. I'm going to say La Villa. You are correct. Oh, wow. La Villa wins every time it does whenever la villa is in a poll you can guarantee that's the winner 44 percent said la villa strangiato 28 percent said natural science oh 23 percent said the garden wow and available light did not get much love in this poll only six percent but usually la villa strangiato is uh yeah a landslide winner and it and it was in this case as well yep so you got an email for us, Jer. We got to keep moving. We got to get all this done in an hour. We can do it. Okay. Yeah. I do have an email. Ready for this one? Yes. This is from Patrick. Hey, Patrick. He says, I only discovered something for nothing, a Rush fan cast, which is us, Steve. That's us. Two and a half months ago. This is from beginning of August. Okay. So I'm, so I'm still catching up on all of the episodes. I just listened to the Liz Swan and Hemispheres episodes last weekend and they were fantastic so despite the 75 81 era of rush being my favorite overall i have to admit that there was a gap in my rush fandom for that era for as much as i absolutely love side two of hemispheres side one never hooked me really that's what he says i certainly appreciated the incredible skill and musicianship of side one but unlike other long songs like 2112 cygnus x1 book one xanadu jacob's ladder etc Cygnus X1 book two hemispheres for whatever reason, never hooked me. I've never felt an emotional attachment to it. So flash forward to your podcast, listening to the Liz Swan interview was eye opening. The way she describes Cygnus X1 book two hemispheres, which from now on, I'm just going to say hemispheres. Okay. uh, Was really powerful and inspiring. After that, I made a point of dedicating time to listening to hemispheres three times a day for a week. Wow. (laughs) <laughs> Can you believe that? That's dedication. Three times a day for a week. And now I am so mad at myself. Hemispheres is an absolute masterpiece. And I can't believe I spent so much time not listening to it. 
The lyrics and the story are so beautiful and powerful and as relevant as ever 40 years later. Neil Peart was truly a genius and I miss him so much. Needless to say, I was blown away. So then I proceeded to listen to your Hemispheres Part 1 episode, which just took me further down the rabbit hole. Your discussion and analysis of the lyrics, story, and themes were fantastic. I loved how easily Steve was convinced to switch from Team Apollo to Team Dionysus and finally to Team Cygnus. I'm easily swayed. Lastly, I 100% agree with you about what you said about the acoustic coda at the end. It's so beautiful, and you do feel disappointed that it's over. It definitely leaves me wanting more. I didn't think I could love Rush more than I did, but this podcast has helped expand my fandom. Wow. That's great. Love the podcast. Keep up the great work and congrats on 50 episodes from your favorite millennial listener, Patrick. He's from Seattle. Thanks, Patrick. That's great. Yeah. And we have to thank Liz Swan again because, you know, she's responsible for that, really. Oh, yeah. I know. We may have been responsible for getting her on the podcast, but she did all the work. She knows all the (laughs) stuff. That's true. That's basically, that's basically every interview we do. We get them on and they do all the work. <laughs> they do all the talking and we do all the listening. <laughs> and we're going to do some listening to track five on Signals, Jer. That was great, Steve. Good segue, right? Yep. Oh, yeah. Here's the weapon. Can any part of life be larger than life? Even love must be limited by time. And those who push us down that they might die. Is any killer worth more than Jared, this is part two of Fear, Mm -hmm. and I've got a quote from Neil. Okay. Now, for each of these songs on side two of Signals, I'm going to read a portion of stories from Signals, which were collected from the drummer's diary, and I found these on the Power Windows website. Okay. So thanks to Eric Hansen for putting these up on his website. What's the drummer's diary? I guess this was in the tour book for Signals. Oh, okay. So Neil wrote, wrote about each of the songs. I thought it might be a book or something that I wasn't No, 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 no. This is headlined Stately Dirk Manor, somewhere north of Toronto, December 1981. With a rolling drum machine and assorted synthesizers, Getty and friend Oscar secret themselves in Ged's music room to create some music of a highly confidential and experimental nature. Among the top secret projects which they produce is the basic foundation for this song, The Weapon including a highly mysterious and bizarre drum pattern, which Oscar coaxes out of the drum machine. And then it says in parentheses, I'm supposed to learn how to play that. (laughs) Well, I do love a challenge. And once we start to tackle this at one of the rehearsals, 
I discover that if I play totally backwards and bend my hands a few ways that they don't normally go, I can do it. The shame of being reduced to learning from a machine. However, I must admit, I would never have come up with something like that on my own. How cool is that? That is very cool. And there's more. And with all this and more to accomplish with my hands, it is no compromise to let my bass drum foot play a steady four, which is also something I never thought I could do. This also brings the feel of the song perilously close to a dance song, like, you know, disco. Treason. (laughs) Treason. Kill the traitors. They wrote a song you can dance to. Will you ever forgive us? And then it says in parentheses, no. Oh, boy. (laughs) It was fun to do, though. It's so contrary to the mood suggested by the lyrics and such a different approach for us that it is a very satisfying piece of work. It's an all-out production number that we can play live, so I'm sure all the disco kids will soon be coming to our concerts. Ha. Yeah. (laughs) Ha, indeed. Interesting, right? Yeah. It's it's interesting when people uh, create something on an instrument that they're not used to creating on, sometimes great things happen. So if they're, if Getty, I guess was programming the drum machine came up with this wacky beat that a drummer would never come up with. That's great. And I just think it's great that they're always experimenting, always trying new things and not afraid to not only try those things, but put them on a record. Right. And Neil was just like, Oh, I'll, I'll learn that. Yeah. Not no, no pride, no, no ego. Yeah. In the way. This is, a, this is a great drum thing. I'm going to learn it. Now, how many drummers would have heard that and said, no way. I'm not doing yeah. that. Yeah. Neil goes the opposite way. Right. A challenge? Let me try it. Right. Challenge accepted. Why not put a disco song on a Rush record? Now, I never thought of this song as a disco no, song. No, no, no. But I, I, guess, <laughs> I guess the drum beat is what he's saying has a disco sort of feel to it. Yeah. Sure. I'll buy that. Yeah. So you want more? I've got more, Jar. Yeah, let's hear it. Alex Lifeson from Guitar Magazine 1984. When we write a song, I think in context of a space for the solo. It's left at that. We work on the arrangement to get it right. When we go into the studio to get the basic tracks down, I spend a couple of days and start doing my solos then. That is usually the first time I think about or work on my solos. We've discussed Hmm. this before. Yeah. Just winging it. Yeah, very intuitive. Occasionally, I'll throw something down while we're writing just to fill the space. Very seldom do I use anything. On the weapon, I used a couple of things that came out during those writing sessions. Normally, I spend a couple of days on solos and work from scratch. We work on getting a sound. I try to get a feel for what the solo should be doing and then pursue different directions. I might pursue something for hours and do a collage. I'll drop in a whole different section and see how it feels. Then I relearn the solo when we get ready to go back on the road. Wow. Yeah. Crazy, right? Yeah. You know, there's a lot of trust in yourself, I think, doing something like that. Like just approaching it the way he approaches it. And she's like, oh, let's see if I can hit that magic again. And he already always does. He just trusts himself that sooner or later he's going to come up with something. Yeah. And he does. And it's amazing every time. And I think if he put work into it and planned it out, it wouldn't be as good as it is. No. So it worked perfectly for him. Neil, he needed to meticulously plan out every drum part. And Alex yeah. needed the opposite yeah. to be as great as he was, which is, which is amazing to me. Yeah, you just got to learn how to work with what you have. And let's not forget Getty, Jared. The bass line on this song is another great one. Yeah, it is. I mean, so much great bass work 
on signals. And this, this is another one. Yeah. I mean, and the keyboards too, they're, they're not overwhelming on this song. They're there. No, not at all. Not at all. Yeah. So why don't we get into the lyrics? Okay. The first line, Jer, we've got nothing to fear, but fear itself. That's familiar. Is it not? It is. It's from American president Franklin Delano Roosevelt's first inaugural address. So FDR said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And Neil took that, we've got nothing to fear, but fear itself, question mark. Yeah, there's a little bit more to that quote from uh, FDR. Okay, go ahead. He says, so first of all, let me assert, because you have to remember, this is like in the middle of the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. So things are not going so great worldwide. He says, so first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. Wow. And so the beginning of the song, we have nothing to fear. Like you said, but fear itself, a question. That's, I mean, that's just not true, right? There's lots of things to fear. Oh, sure. In the world, not pain. And it's so funny because it's like, we have nothing to fear but fear itself, question mark, not pain or failure. Not fatal tragedy, not the faulty units in this man machinery, not the broken contacts in emotional chemistry. It's like, are you kidding me? There's so <laughs> many things to fear. And this song is about fear, part two of fear. Right. And I guess, you know, the weapon is what other people recognize as your fear and then they use it against you. Yep. Whatever that is. And it could be anything. Could be anything. With an iron fist and a velvet glove, we are sheltered under the gun. In the glory game on the power train, thy kingdoms will be done, which, you know, is, is from the, the Lord's prayer. Mm -hmm. And the chorus is basically exactly what you just said. And the things that we fear are a weapon to be held against us. Yeah. But then we get to like a, a personal thing, right? He says, he's not afraid of your judgment. He knows of horrors worse than your hell. He's a little bit afraid of dying, but he's a lot more afraid of your lying. Who's, who's he? Who is he? Who is he? Is he the person that is holding the weapon against us, whoever that may be? Or is he the person whose the weapon is being held against? What do you think? I think it's the latter. Okay. Those two choices. Okay. He's a little bit afraid of dying, but he's a lot more afraid of your lying. Because I wrote down, because if you lie to him, then you are using his fears against him. Like if you can, if you know what his, someone's weaknesses are, and you concoct some lie that makes that person afraid, that's the weapon. Right. You know what I mean, right. See in politics all the time. Oh, sure. If you can identify a group's fears and you pander to those fears, then you've got them. You know what I mean? Yeah. And the people that fear someone in the government, let's say, yeah, the thing they fear the most is the lying, the lying. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I think so. Can any part of life be larger than life? Even love must be limited by time. Yeah. And those who push us down that they might climb. Is any killer worth more than his crime? Yeah. That last line too. Is any killer worth more than his crime? That's a good question. <laughs> it's a good question. Like, dude, is there a, any kind of redemption or forgiveness for people with the crimes they've committed? You know what I mean? If you kill someone, it could be a question of um, capital punishment, right? Right. And that's a great debate. Right. If you kill somebody, should you also be killed? Are you worth more than your crime? This thing about this song, too, is while it's certainly about, you know, 
individual fear being used against you. It raises a lot of questions that I don't have any answers to. Well, right. I don't think it answers the questions, but no, but it raises them. And these are questions that we don't have answers to. Is any killer worth more than his crime? We, we don't know. Right. And the beginning, you know, can any part of life be larger than life? Also a question. What do you think that means? Can any part be larger than can any part of life be larger than life? You're talking about like the, the phrase, the saying, or whatever that somebody is larger than life. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. What do you What do you think it is? I, I don't know. I don't know. It could just be that we're all constrained by life itself, right? And that we we can't, you know, supersede it. We can't do more than it. If that makes mm-hmm. any sense at all? Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It does. It does. I love the next line, like a steely blade in a silken sheath. We don't see what they're made of. I think you're right. I think we're talking about the people that are holding the weapons against us. We, we can't see what they're made of. They're hiding behind that silken sheath. Right. We can't see the lies. We can't see what their true motives are. I mean, that goes back to the top too. This, you know, the second, second verse with an iron fist and a velvet glove. And now we have a steely blade and a silken sheath. Mm-hmm. Right. They shout about love, but when push comes to shove, they live for the things they're afraid of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. I know. All I can think about is, you know, if analogous to today, you know, people just revolve their lives around these semi-imagined fears. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? They'll they'll base their entire life and their entire identity on protecting themselves from something that isn't really there. Maybe I'm reading too far into it, given our political climate. But Well, the thing that's great about Rush songs, about Neil's lyrics, is that they're still relevant today. Almost all of them. And this song was, was you know, written during the Cold War. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure there's a lot of that right. in here. You know, I mean, where governments were just constantly trying to undermine each other. Right. Yeah. With the nuclear arms race, I mean, it was top of mind at that point, for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And what do you think that means? Um, they shout about love when push comes to shove. Who's shouting about the love? Like, like people are just like, oh, we should just get along or maybe trying to make um, some kind of uh, peace accord with someone. And yet they don't really want those things. They just want it for show. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense for sure. Just a fantastic set of lyrics from Neil. Yeah. And the song itself is, you know, it's got that, that dancey sort of beat to it on the drums. Yeah. But it, it, like you said, it doesn't, doesn't come off as a disco song to me for sure. No, I was just surprised when, when you read that it's not as disco as like, uh, like kiss did. Right. Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely not. (laughs) I was made for loving you. That's a disco song. It really is a disco song, but then let's get to the end of the song. Right. Okay. That's spooky, spooky kind of guitar solo part. Oh yeah. Man, it sort of like devolves or maybe evolves into just this emotional release of like suspicion and weirdness, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. The solo. I thought you were talking about how, uh, you know, how he makes his solos. Alex makes his solos. This, this solo is just sprawling, but in, and incredible. Yeah. He just gets himself in the mindset of the song and it just comes out of him. Yeah. And I don't think I mentioned before on the, two previous podcasts, but I, I, I'm probably going to get, uh, you know, a couple of emails about this, but you can really hear the whammy bar on this album. And I, I think it might be the first time he really, really, really 
leans on that whammy bar a lot. And that definitely gives this sound, this album, a, a certain guitar sound. And why would you get emails about that? Because I don't know if it's the first time he ever used it. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> he, obviously, he obviously used the whammy bar, I think, during Limelight. But this, almost every solo on this album is distorted in that way, it seems to me. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I don't know either, but I'm sure there are guitarists out there who do know. Yeah, I should have looked it up. And as we mentioned before, this song fades in and it fades out. Yeah, how amazing is that? So we, we thought that perhaps it was to tie in with The Enemy Within, which is on Grace Under Pressure. That fades out. Yep. That's part one of Fear. Fades into part two of Fear. And then perhaps the fade out leads us right into Witch Hunt, yep. which is on Moving Pictures. That could be the reason for the fade out and the fade in. I think I mentioned once before that somebody had told me that. Really? Somebody had sent me an email about that. Yeah. And it was our good friend, Arjun. Oh, Arjun. So is that true? Did Rush do that on purpose? That was his idea. I mean, maybe he... That was his deduction. I see. Yeah. And I I think it's right though. So... Yeah. I think so too. Yeah. You know, just another fantastic track on this record. I mean, there's not a bad one here. No. Right? Maybe <laughs> we'll get to that later. Bad. Define define bad, Steve. Let's, let's well that let's that's, just move on. That'll let's, take yeah. an hour just to define bad. Good, and then we won't have to discuss it. <laughs> Track six on signals. New world map. anything on uh quotes on new world man i sure do from the same drummer's diary jar this one is titled le studio quebec may 1982 these are this is from neil's diary at this point the basic tracks for the other seven songs were finished and we have enough for an album but we've always wanted to write another song for this one we want more there are moral reasons why an album should not be too short but there are technological reasons why it shouldn't be too long what shall we do? We decided to write another song. And if it turns out to be too long, we won't put it on. But if we come up with something short enough, we have an eighth song. So thus was born Project 3 Minutes and 57 Seconds. <laughs> In order for another song not to cause great inequality between the length of the two sides and not to cause us trouble with the mastering of the album, it had to be under four minutes. When was the last time we wrote a song under four minutes, you ask? That's a good question, and one that we asked ourselves, too. But we figured we had nothing to lose. If it's too long, we simply put it away and save it for another record. 
And in parentheses, it says, actually, different strings and circumstances were both under four minutes. <laughs> and Closer to the Heart and Madrigal were both under three. We can do it. <laughs> and then it says target three minutes, 57 seconds. I spent a couple of days wringing out my notebook and trying a few of the themes from other songs and came up with a straightforward, concise set of lyrics consisting of the two verses and the two choruses. And we went to work. We decided to play this one fast and loose, writing it in one day and recording it the next. We wanted to capture a spontaneous, relaxed feel for this one not even spending much time getting the sounds together. Thus, it could stand in contrast to the rest of the album, being much more raw and live in its effect. Two Days is very close to a record for us to write and record a song. The quickest ever was Twilight Zone from 2112. That was written and recorded in one day. But then that whole album was completed in under a month. Wow. Things are much different now. So I always love to hear that story about how this was just, Recorded in one day. Yeah. Amazing. I had heard that it was some kind of uh, like a contractual thing that they needed to come up with this song, but it doesn't sound like it was. That's what I heard too, but I think, I think that's wrong maybe based on this. Yeah. They just wanted to, you know, keep the sides this relatively same length. Yeah. But the amazing thing is this song was written and recorded in a day. They hadn't intended to write it and it was their biggest hit. I mean, such an amazing song. How crazy is that? It is insane. It is. Again, we talk about the top 10. This is definitely (laughs) top 20 for me. Definitely. I love this song because it's a very, I think it's a very complicated song lyrically at least. Yeah. And hits on, hits on a lot of interesting ideas. And again, I mean, I keep talking about the bass lines on this record, but this is another one. This is an iconic Getty Lee bass line. Yeah. Here's a quote from Getty Lee. Sure. It wouldn't have been on the record if we didn't have four minutes of space available. Mm. We tend to have pretty strict ideas on how long an album should be. and Basically, it's just a matter of value. Our shortest albums are about 18 minutes aside. That's a pretty good value. I couldn't see us going below that. It doesn't make sense to me. But at the same time, we're now recording digitally. And so we do have certain considerations as to how the whole thing's going to sound when you cut it. There, you're dealing with quality, which is again down to value for money. I think that what it really boiled down to was that we worked so hard getting all these slick sounds that we were all in the mood to put something down that was real spontaneous. In the end, the whole song took one day to write and record. It's good to put something together like that. Cool, right? Yeah. I've said this before, writing songs is is a mystery. But (laughs) one day, come on, man. Yeah. I mentioned a couple of podcasts ago that I wanted to hear Casey Kasem playing (gasps) New World Man on American Top 40. And? And I could not find it. Oh! I couldn't. You know what the funny thing is? A lot of people have posted entire American Top 40s on YouTube and put them up. Okay. But unfortunately, all the ones that New World Man was in, I could not find on YouTube. Oh, there have to be archives somewhere, right? So I've got a project for our listeners. Somebody out there has to be able to find this. I want to hear Casey Kasem introducing (laughs) New World Man by Rush. How cool would that be? That would be amazing. Was it only on the top 40, in the top 40, like one week? No, it was, it was October, late October, early November, 1982. So I think, I think it might've been three or four weeks that it, it cracked the top 40. 
made it to number 21 at one point, but I could not find any American top 40 during that time period. But I, I found others in 1982, but not, not those. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a conspiracy. So if anybody out there has a lot of spare time looking for something to find, we would love to hear that. I would, I would really love to hear that. Yeah, we'll play, we'll play it on the podcast. Because he always, he always came up with something weird to say about every song. Yeah, Casey. I think it would be cool. You know, he'll tell a little story about Rush and, you know, who they are and all that stuff, right? Three guys from Canada. (laughs) (laughs) Like I said, I think, like I said last time, it would be hilarious if it was a long distance dedication to somebody. That would be very cool. So uh, why don't we get into the lyrics, Jar? Okay. You love them. I love them. Yeah. He's a rebel and a runner. He's a signal turning green. He's a restless young romantic, wants to run the big machine. Who is he, Jer? Well, my two thoughts have always been that since it's New World Man, right? And the New World, quote unquote, was, you know, North America. Oh, okay. Back in the day. Is that your interpretation of New World here? Yeah, because he talks about Old World and then Third World. Right. So the Old World would be, you know, Europe. Mm-hmm. Third World would be emerging countries and New World would be north america and I'm, I'm assuming it would be primarily the united states right that he's talking about because mm-hmm. it's there's, there's some critical stuff in here so i'm assuming it's about the united states okay he's a rebel you know whatever that's the an idea that people have about america is that it's filled with rebels and a runner he's a signal turning green right he's always just moving forward right never stopping he's a restless young romantic and wants to run the big machine which is true you know wants to be in charge Someone's got to run the world, right, Steve? <laughs> Might as well be us. <laughs> Might as well be us. <laughs> Are we the new world men, Jer? Not personally. Well, that's the other thing. Either it's, it's, it's about the United States or it's about one particular person in the United States. Perhaps the president, maybe. Ronald Reagan was the president at this time. Yeah, he wasn't running much. <laughs> <laughs> he was eating jelly beans. That is true. Um, and the next, he's, he's got a problem with his poisons. But you know he'll find a cure. He's cleaning up his systems to keep his nature pure. And I think that he has a problem with his poisons is historically, we've had a lot of poisonous kind of things in our society. Mm-hmm. Right? He's got a, and, and we have problems with them. There's problems that were created and have, are still affecting us even today. But there's also some like optimistic view that we'll find a solution to something sooner or later. You know, no problem is insurmountable, right? Right. Like COVID-19, we're going to find a vaccine. Going to find a solution. Yep. Going to find that vaccine. So we have problems. You got problems with these societal problems, uh, societal poisons, but you know what? We'll find a cure him someday. And he's cleaning up his systems to keep his nature pure. And I think that cleaning up his systems means going after the things within government that poison government. You know what I mean? Okay. Going after corruption, maybe going after graft going after nepotism and things like that to keep the idea pure. The idea of what the United States was supposedly founded on, keeping that idea pure. Now, is he actually cleaning up his systems or is he just giving the appearance that he's cleaning up his systems? That's a great question. I mean, you can keep your nature pure by making it appear you're cleaning up your systems, not actually doing it, right? I don't know. I mean, you could keep your appearance pure, but I don't know if you can keep your nature pure. Because, you know, Governments are supposed to be self, you know, like self, a self-cleaning oven, 
mm-hmm. every once in a while. You know what I mean? You can amend constitutions. You can make laws. You can nullify laws if they're not working. You know what I mean? It's supposed to be this ever-evolving thing to keep the promise of a country moving forward. Mm-hmm. That's just my interpretation of it. And that's where we get, so I mean, learning to match the beat of the old world man, learning to catch the heat of the third world man. What do you think that means? Well, learning to match the beat of the old world man to me means that whatever came before, you know, before you can move forward, you have to learn from the past or be in step with the past, right? So he's learning to match the beat of the old world man, learning from them how to form government society in general, but you're learning to catch the heat from the third world man because you don't want to lose your spot, you know, in the hierarchy, right? Right, right. So uh, emerging nations are going to do new and innovative things and you've got to learn how to, how to deal with that. That makes any sense. Yeah, no, no, that makes perfect sense. I'm glad you're here to explain all this, Jer, because I, I can't. I'm, I just, I have a feeling that this song, I'm, somebody's going to send an email and said, actually, you know, it's about daisies in a field. I'm just, if you have a feeling, I'm just way, way overthinking this song. I don't know, but maybe, maybe you're, you're thinking just perfectly about it though. You know, maybe people are underthinking this song. Maybe I underthink this song. So we, we get to uh, the, I guess this is the chorus, right? Sure. He's got to make his own mistakes and learn to mend the mess he makes. He's old enough to know what's right, but young enough not to choose it. Yep. He's noble enough to win the world, but weak enough to lose it. I mean, that is incredible. (laughs) It is absolutely incredible. You can never, there's always so much awe to be found in in Neil's lyrics. And just to think he was, he wasn't even 30 when he wrote these. Young guy writing these brilliant lyrics. I know the, the perception it's amazing. Really? He's got, he's got to make his own mistakes and learn the men the mess he makes. We never learn from history, right? We should. I know we should. We never do. It's, a, you know, supposedly what's the line? Uh, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think we're doomed to repeat it. I think we're almost destined, destined to repeat it. <laughs> but he says, you know, he's got to make his own mistakes. But you kind of, I get the feeling, you know, they're everyone else's mistakes too. They've been made, these mistakes have been made before. Yeah. But he's got to make them too. And he's got to learn. And then he has to learn how to clean them up. Mm-hmm. Even though other people have already cleaned them up before. Um, and he's old enough to know it's right, but young enough not to choose it. Now, now does that mean he's, he's not choosing to do what's right? Yeah. Just because he's young and stupid? Yeah. There's this, there's this um, quote that's been attributed to, um, Winston Churchill. Okay. I don't, I, I looked it up to see it when he said it, but evidently there's no actual um, evidence that it, he wrote it down or it was published anywhere, but it's supposed, this is supposedly what he said was America always does the right thing after they've tried everything else. Wow. Well, that's spot on. Whoever said it, <laughs> whoever said it is spot on. And I, I think that's the, that's the vibe I get from these two lines. He's old enough to know what's right young enough not to choose it. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, maybe because the, the right thing is really hard to do. You're old enough, so you have the wisdom to know what the right thing to do is, but you're young enough to just be, you know, take, take an easier way. Mm-hmm. And he's noble enough to win the world, but weak enough to lose it. Again, just a, just a brilliant line. It is. He's a new world man. 
so I guess this is where I really started to think that maybe it, it's about the U.S. He's a radio receiver turned to factories and farms. He's a writer and a ranger and a young boy bearing arms. At this point, it's like he's every, whoever this new world man is, he, he's everybody. Yeah, he's all of us. He's all of us, mm-hmm. right? He's tuned into the factories and the farms. So the, the common man, quote unquote, right? He's got his pulse on what people need, but he's also, you know, an artist, a writer and an arranger mm-hmm. and, all, and also a fighter. He's a young boy bearing arms. He's got a problem with his power, weapons on patrol. He's got to walk a fine line and keep his self-control. Interesting. Yeah. To me, that's just seems to be about war in general or, you know, involving yourself in other countries issues. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to, you have to keep your self-control. There's a fine line between doing something and doing nothing or doing something and ruining it as opposed to doing nothing and ruining it. Could he be talking about individuals here though? Yeah. Americans are, are well-armed as we know. <laughs> well, it's true. It is true. It is true. I mean, I took it as individuals rather than the country as a whole. Right. But I could be wrong. Yeah, I don't know. With weapons on patrol, I guess it could be either one. I mean, it's, you know, if the previous one is about individuals, how the new world man is everyone, this could also be the same idea. that the, this aspect of the new world man is also everyone. And then he's trying to save the day for the old world man and trying to pave the way for the third world man. So he's trying to have it both ways. Yep. He's trying to keep the structure in place, the old world structure, whatever that is, right? The, the form of government, the, the power elite, I don't know, whoever the, whatever the structure of the old world is. But he also wants newer countries to emerge and, and build up strong and you know, contribute to the overall you know, output of the, of the world. I just love the way Neil changes the phrasing yep. here. And he does this yeah. with his drum parts too. Right. And his lyrics. You know, he could have used the same chorus as he did the first time, but he changed it up and it's even better. I know. And the words that he changes have, have such such deep meaning and, and changed the, the the whole, you know, tenor of the line. Mm-hmm. Best. So then we get to <laughs> he's not concerned with yesterday. He knows constant change is here today. He's noble enough to know what's right, but weak enough not to choose it. He's wise enough to win the world, but fool enough to lose it. Yep. Again, similar sentiment to the, the previous chorus, but, right. but different words. Different words, yeah. He's not concerned with yesterday. He knows constant change is here today. It's great. There's something about that that just makes me think that there's an idea that, you know, that the past is the past. Just let it be. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. If it doesn't, sure, sure it happened. Okay. Maybe we invaded a few countries. <laughs> maybe, maybe we overthrew a few democratically elected governments here and there. Uh, yeah, don't worry about that. It's in the past. Constant change is here to stay. We're not concerned with yesterday. We're not concerned with yesterday. Again, it just it could be me in this political climate right now being a little critical. But, but you could be spot on, though. Yeah, I hope so. But I've always thought this of this song about what a kind of a criticism it is. Yeah. A few things musically. I mean, I love the opening with those funky sampled keyboard part. Yeah. It's great. Really good. Yeah. Another thing that jumped out at me was the drums on the chorus. Just Neil with the fills. It's 
just fantastic. And, yeah. And Getty's bass line, again, great. And you might notice no guitar solo. No guitar solo. I did not have in my notes a great Alex guitar solo. Yeah. Because there isn't one. There isn't one. I wonder why. They only had three minutes and 57 seconds, Jerry. They had to cut it out. <laughs> I guess so. Not that Alex is doing a, uh, you know, is taking a back seat at all. No, He's no, got, it's, it's great. Great rhythm. Great rhythms in this song. Yeah. Yeah. And Neil does that hi-hat thing at the beginning that you, oh, that you I was like. just going to, I know. Right? I was just going to mention that. Yep. Yeah. I love that. So before we move on to losing it, do you think that this is Rush's catchiest song? Is this the song that sticks in your head more than any other song after you hear it? I don't know. I haven't asked this question before. What do you think? This is one that just sticks in my head. Whenever I hear this song, I'm singing it for another couple of days. I don't know. It definitely is catchy. I guess that we should really ask someone who doesn't listen to Rush all the time. Yeah. Play him a bunch of songs and see which one they think is the catchiest. But maybe the fact that it was a top 40 hit proves my point. That's true. Yeah. I mean, aren't top 40 hits the, the catchiest songs of 1982? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I really should look at a list and see what the other songs in the top 40 were at the time. That'd be an interesting thing. You want to do that right now and just tack it on? Let's throw in Alexa's bass lines in here while I find it. So I've got the list, Jer. Okay. And I found the week that Rush was at number 21. Okay. October 30th, 1982. So you want to hear some of the other songs? I'm not going to go through the whole thing. Our, our hour thing is out the window, first of all. Yeah, I know. So, so you can kiss that goodbye. Um, <laughs> <laughs> here, here's some that, that I even recognize. Uh, number 13 was Gloria by Laura Branigan. Remember that song? Oh, I remember that song. Sure. Flock of Seagulls, I Ran, number nine. Jackson Brown, Somebody's Baby was number seven. Okay. Up Where We Belong, Joe Cocker and Jennifer Warnes was number five. Yep. Eye in the Sky, the Alan Parsons Project, was number three. Wow. Jack and Diane by John Cougar was number two. Oh, boy. And the number one song, October 30th, 1982, was Men at Work. Who can it be now? Wow. How about that? Yeah. Casey would have had a good time with that one, I'm sure. He would have had a great time. <laughs> Rushed it pretty well. Those are some pretty good songs in there. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Speaking of pretty good songs, we got another one for track seven on Signals, Jar. Yeah. Losing it. And he stares out the kitchen door where the sun will rise no more. All right, Jerry, we've discussed the live version of Losing It that Rush did on their final tour many, many times. It was fantastic. We all agree. We do. 
We do. So the studio version of Losing It. Also fantastic. Also fantastic. From Neil's notes, Le Studio Quebec, June 1982. Like the verse sections for Analog Kid, the main theme for this song came from Alex's holiday exercises. We worked out the verses and choruses while we were in rehearsal and made a skeletal demo of it with just keyboards and drums, then put it away until we got into the studio. We had talked for a while about getting Ben Mink to play electric violin somewhere on the album, and this seemed like the perfect track. Once we got into the studio, we developed the jazzy solo section, recorded the basic track, and gave Ben a call. Fortunately, he was able to get away from his group FM for a couple of days and bring his unique instrument up to play his heart out for us. Pretty cool, huh? Yeah. Ben Mink. I've always loved this song. Even as a teenager, you know, I connected with the story of it. And it really is an interesting story. I mean, it's unlike the other songs on this album, I think, because Mm -hmm. it it tells, you know, a a couple of personal stories about uh, people who are, you know, growing older and cannot perform the way that they used to. Yeah. The studio version was great. The live version was powerful. Yeah. The first lyric that we're going to talk about, the dancer slows her frantic pace. Yeah. I got this from the Rush backstage newsletters. Neil says the dancer is no one in particular, though partly inspired by the movie The Turning Point, starring Shirley MacLaine. I never saw that. Again, a movie I have not seen, (laughs) which goes with just about every movie. (laughs) Yeah, I've never even heard of that. But yeah, I mean, you know, the dancer slows her frantic pace in pain and desperation, erecting limbs and downcast face aglow with perspiration. Stiff as wire, her lungs on fire with just the briefest pause, flooding through her memory, the echoes of old applause. So she's an older dancer who can't quite do what she used to do. Yep. She limps across the floor and closes the bedroom door, going off by herself to cry or just yeah sit with the, sit with her sadness. Yeah, I mean, this is a sad song. It really is. This is a very sad song. I'm going to go out on a limb and say the saddest Rush song. The saddest Rush song, yeah, for sure, absolutely. And he, and of course, you know, Neil perfectly captures the the aspects of someone, you know, who's losing their talent or has lost their talent. You know yeah, I mean? how that person is going to feel about it. And it's amazing that he had this perspective at such a young age. Was able to yeah. tap into that perspective, I guess. Yeah, I mean, maybe it was a concern of his, and he just could extrapolate from where he was to where he was afraid he might end up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then we get into the next part. The writer stares with glassy eyes, defies the empty page. His beard is white. His face is lined and streaked with tears of rage. And this is a writer who has got nothing. Nothing. Nothing left. Spent. Yeah. Yep. Spent. Yeah. And maybe Neil feared being that person one day. Yeah. Who couldn't write lyrics anymore. He just didn't have anything left in his head to put to paper. Right. 30 years ago, how the words would flow with passion and precision, but now his mind is dark and dulled by sickness and indecision. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I know. And then he stares out the kitchen door where the sun will rise no more. So I think, I don't know if you have anything about this, but I've always thought that the writer is uh, Ernest Hemingway. Yeah, well, I read that the lyrics refer to her Ernest Hemingway. Oh. Yeah, I mean, his... Two novels, The Sun Also Rises. I'm not sure what part is from The Sun Also Rises, but... Well, that would be The Sun Will Rise No More. Oh, well, there you go. And 
the bell tolls for thee is for whom the bell tolls. Yeah. Right? From the bell tolls. Yep. Yeah. And Hemingway committed suicide. So I think the line, you know, he stares out the kitchen door where the sun will rise no more. And the sun's going to rise. Not for him, though. But not for him. Right. The best lyric in the whole song is the next one, I think. Some are born to move the world, to live their fantasies. But most of us just dream about the things we'd like to be. Yeah. So true. I like how he includes us with him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's us. It's very nice of him because <laughs> that most of my, he includes himself with us, I mean. Right, but that's the way he felt, though. He felt like he was one of us. He didn't feel like he was better than us, Jerry, even though he clearly was. Right. Right? So he, was, he includes himself, and most of us just dream about the things we'd like to be. Even though he accomplished so much. Yeah. But then sadder still to watch it die than never to have known it. For you, the blind who once could see the bell tolls for thee. This is so emotional. It brings a tear to your eye. I know. And that line, you know, Hemingway took for whom the bell tolls from a poem, you know, mm. from John Donne. You know, at the end of that is for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee, which is about mortality and about how individual, like every individual feels the death of other individuals. Yeah. It's a really good poem. It's very short. And it also contains a line that, that people use all the time. No man is an island entire of himself. Mm -hmm. If you ever heard the phrase, no man is an island, it's oh, also yeah. from the same poem. And the fact that they chose this to play on their final tour, I mean, says a lot. I mean, I think it was done deliberately because of these lyrics, don't you think? I think so, yeah. I mean, it's, it's obviously about creative people being afraid of losing what makes them happy and what they've done so well for so long. Yeah, and I think that's, that's a real reason why Neil didn't want to tour anymore. He, did, he wanted to be the old Neil. Yeah. He didn't want to be a shell of himself on stage. Although none of us could tell. No, no, no. I mean, later on, I mean, I think he felt if he continued for, say, another 10 years, right. he would have been a shell of himself, let's say. Yeah. So. And then, then the song just breaks your heart. Oh, yeah. Cracks, cracks in half. Oh, and the, the violin solo is crazy good. I mean, so good. It is. Epic. Yeah. And definitely the, the electric violin adds a certain sadness to it. Just the sound of it. Mm -hmm. Fabulous. Just fabulous. Another fantastic track. Yep. So anything else to say on losing it, Jar, before we lose it ourselves? No, but man, another, another good transition there. Steve, <laughs> segue. Really, really pull things together this episode. The final song on Signals is Countdown.
right, Jar. So um, an hour podcast, I think, is out the window. So we might as well just go ahead and talk all we like about Countdown. Okay. <laughs> Even though we were just talking today about how we always keep our podcasts under an hour. I know. And we didn't do it. Oh, maybe wow. we can just cut uh, <laughs> cut out a lot of stuff. Well, we'll see. Maybe maybe I can do it. If if this podcast ends up being an hour, you could thank me for some fancy editing. We should always thank you for fancy editing, Steve. <laughs> if people had to listen to what we actually say, as opposed to what ends up on the podcast, it'd be a totally different ballgame. So from Neil's notes, Cape Kennedy, Florida, April 1982. We were there. It wasn't easy, but we made it. We had a long-standing invitation to the first launch and always swore that we would be there no matter what. Little did we know. On April 9th, we flew into Orlando on a day off, checked into a hotel, and slept till about 4 a.m. when we had to leave for our rendezvous at the Air Force Base near the Cape. There we met our liaison man, who conducted us safely into the VIP zone, Red Sector A, in the pre-dawn hours. I had read that someplace else that they were place that they, they were at was called red sector a which became the name yep. of a future rush song right we stood around listening to the announcements as the sun rose higher and hotter in the sky we were due to play that night in dallas so we couldn't wait much longer finally they announced the launch will be scrubbed for that day the computers weren't speaking so the next night we had a show in san antonio after which we drove off immediately clambered into a higher jet and flew straight back to florida this time, the launch took place on schedule, and it was something. Again, we raced back to the plane and flew off once more back to Fort Worth, where we had a show that night. Wow. Fortunately, the day after was a day off, so we had a chance to catch up on all that sleep. How cool is that? That's very cool. I'm very jealous, really, that they had this experience, because when I was a kid, I don't know why, the space shuttle was endlessly fascinating to me. I just thought it was the greatest thing. Yeah. And after a couple of days without sleep, he said, we've got to write a song about this. It was an incredible thing to witness, a truly once-in-a-lifetime experience. I can only hope the song comes even close to capturing this, the excitement and awe we felt that morning. Mm-hmm. Now, after hearing all of that, Jer, yes, your thoughts on Countdown? Well, I might have mentioned this a couple of times before. I, this is not one of my favorite songs. This is, this is one of the few songs that immediately goes to the bottom of the pile. Really? That far? Like yeah. bottom 10? Yep. Wow. Immediately. Thought, no thought about it. I'm floored by that. Really? Yeah. There's just, I mean, I can tell you why, and I hope people don't get mad at me, but I'll t- I can. Well, people aren't going to be mad. They're going to disagree with you, but they're, they're not going to be mad at you. Who could be mad at you? Um, <laughs> how you said you didn't want this to be much longer than an hour. So I certainly can't list people. All right. So hit me. Yeah. Okay. My overall problem with the song, the reason why I don't like it is that I find many of the lyrics to be cliche. Okay. Which is something that Neil never does, you know, cause if you're relying on cliche, you know, you're, you're relying on other people knowing what this time worn phrase what it's supposed to indicate and you kind of letting the the reader or the listener do the work for you and he never does that okay but i find he does it on this song really okay yeah especially you want to go down from the top yeah we could go through the lyrics sure let's okay uh, let's do it you do this one you 
All right, lit up with anticipation, we arrive at the launching site. The sky is still dark, nearing dawn on the Florida coastline. He's telling the story here, right? Yeah, it's still a story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Circling choppers slash the night with roving searchlight beams. This magic day when super science mingles with the bright stuff of dreams. Now, I know you're, you, the word you're going to quibble with is stuff, right? <laughs> is it? It's definitely this uh, couplet here, if you want to call it, that starts me off on, on the, the not liking the song. I mean, do you have a problem with the word stuff? My problem with this is, is the word stuff not being concrete enough for me. And the line, you know, this magic day when super science mingles with the bright stuff of dreams. And I'm not a big fan of super science or magic and super science being in the same line and, you know, stuff in, I don't know, dreams. I don't Maybe the dreams are okay. I don't know. It's just, there's something about from here on in that I don't like the word choices and I don't like the, the melody of the song. There really isn't much of a melody to this song, vocal melody. Okay. All right. I mean, that, that's fine. I mean, look, I think it's really powerful. I mean, I think you can feel, you can feel the anticipation building the beginning of this song. That's true. It's got the hi-hat thing that you like. The drum yep. beat is powerful. Yep. I mean, you can, it's almost, it feels like you're heading toward the launching site and going to witness this great event. Yeah, I, I can see that. That's the feel I get from this. I mean, I mean, look, I guess the difference between your interpretation of the song and mine is I didn't really think about the lyrics too much about whether I like this word or I don't like that word. I just think it's a good song. I like it. The only part I really don't like is the keyboard part. I think that's a little cheesy, but a little solo. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like the solo either. Yeah. But other than that, I think the song's fantastic. I mean, we could go through all these lyrics. Do you want to or no? We don't need to. I don't think we need to. I think the other thing that you've mentioned to me before, excitement so thick, you could cut it with a knife. Yeah. You don't like that. I do not like that. <laughs> Just too cliche. It's cliche to, to say that, you know, the air is so tense, you can cut it with a knife. But and think about this, though. Is it possible that Neil is deliberately using cliches in this song to what end? I don't know. Something that somebody who's watching it might say, I don't know. I'm not interested in what you or I would say about such a momentous, (laughs) you and I would say something like that. Right. But, but, but the thing is Neil, just like we were talking about in losing it, Neil is you and I in his mind. True. But he's also a, he loves words and he's a, a gifted lyricist. Right. But he's also just a regular guy like you and me who might True. say something like excitement. So thick you could cut it with a knife. Yeah. As a goof. Uh, maybe as a goof, but do you think he said it as a goof though? Maybe. Is he, is he goofing around in this serious song about, yeah, I don't know if, if him, Getty and Alex are standing around, you know, they might say that just joking around and maybe you put it in the, the lyrics. I don't know. Just throwing it out there. Yeah, it just bothers me. <laughs> Excitement so thick you could cut it with a knife. Okay. You know, because, you know, I mean, you can't. It's a weird, cut. you know, the, the, I guess it's a metaphor. You can cut something with a knife or whatever, but you can't. I mean, I guess it's, it's cute. But can you imagine if something were so thick in front of you 
the, the fog or the excitement or whatever, and you could literally chop a piece of off it with a knife. Yeah, but it's just not. It's just not a good image. Just for me, it's not a good image, and it taints. It's that it just taints the rest of the song for me. Okay, I I get it. I mean, I love it. You don't. I I totally understand why you don't. I really do. But that doesn't bother me. No, it doesn't bother a lot of people. A lot of people love this song. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing I was going to say. Just from interacting with Rush fans on Twitter this past year. Yep. They love, love Countdown. Love Countdown. When I put up the poll for side two of Signals, I bet you this song wins. Maybe out of spite for me, but yes. (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps, perhaps. Anyway, so uh, before we wrap up, Jared, we have to do a set list, don't you think, from the Signals tour? Oh, sure. We usually go through a set list. We're just dropping the end of the song. We're not just going to. Oh, we can. Do you want to talk about the end of the song? No, there's nothing more I can say that isn't that is going to, uh, you know, make anyone else happy about, <laughs> about my feelings on yeah, the song. Yeah, I don't so. think we need to go through every lyric and hear why you hate it, Jar. No, I guess not. <laughs> so anyway, the set list from May 21st, 1983. This is Wembley Arena in London, England, Jar. Wow, I didn't know they played Wembley. Where was I? I don't know. You were home playing tiddlywinks, I guess. I would love to go to Wembley and see a show. Oh, that would be great. So here's the set list. The Spirit of Radio, Tom Sawyer, and Free Will start us off. Nice. Then we get into two new songs, Digital Man and Subdivisions, followed by Vital Signs, The Camera Eye, Closer to the Heart. Then we've got The Analog Kid. First time we've seen them do it live. We're into it. Brune's Bane, followed by the trees, as always. Red Barchetta, The Weapon, New World Man, Limelight, and Countdown. They played Countdown. They played Countdown. I'm sure it was epic. I'm sure it was. Here's the thing. You never saw them do Countdown Live, did you? Nope. I wonder if you had, if you would like this song more. We'll never know, Steve. We'll never know. In some alternate universe, there's, there's a version of me who loves this song because he saw them play it live. <laughs> the encore was 2112 parts one and two, Xanadu, La Villa Strangiato, In the Mood, and YYZ. Wow. Followed by a drum solo. And that was the end of the show. Holy moly, really? How cool is that? Wow. I would have loved to have been there for that. Yeah, really? So on Twitter, Jer. Yes. I got a note from one of our listeners, Chuck. I believe he's emailed you before also. Yes. He was hoping to be converted by us into liking signals. Do you think we converted Chuck? As long as he doesn't listen to Countdown? Yes. <laughs> Chuck, you'll have to let us know whether you were converted by us or not. Right. You can find us on Twitter at Rush Fancast. Instagram, we are the Rushcast. Email Jerry, the Rushcast at gmail.com. Lex, thanks for the baseline. Jerry, thanks for your quote. Let's hear it. Oh, yes. Okay. Can any part of life be larger than life? Even love must be limited by time. Very true. Take it easy. Bye. <laughs>